The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 1, we'll be reading through verse 7 this morning. Isaiah chapter 55, beginning at verse 1, the word of the Lord. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David, Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and commander for the peoples. Behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord, that he may have compassion on him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts." Here endeth the Old Covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Luke. The Gospel according to Luke chapter 2 beginning at verse 1. We will be reading through verse 20 this morning. The word of our God. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, 
Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart, And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all that they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. Here endeth the New Covenant reading. Please keep your place here, as this will be the primary portion of God's word for the morning sermon. And so it is Christmas, such a joyful time of year, with the music the food, and most of all, the celebration of the Son of God coming into this world to save sinners like you and me. And yet it's still a broken and fallen world so that joy is mixed with sorrows. Some of those sorrows are rather significant in our lives. The serious illness of a friend or a relative. Some of those sorrows are perhaps a little bit less significant. Uh, You know, this year, your Christmas dinner cost a lot more than it did last year. I don't know that they figured this out for Christmas dinners, which are a little bit more mixed in terms of diet, but apparently Thanksgiving dinner cost 20% more this year than it did the year before. I say that's a minor thing, because it might seem that way, but you know, this isn't just about food. Uh, Rent is up a staggering 14% this year on average in our country. And if you're trying to get ahead financially, and you're actually falling behind, that can put a great deal of stress into your life and into your family. Many adults, particularly many men, if they have to cut back on not having a vacation this year or not being able to provide presents for their children... They begin not only to feel the stress, they begin to feel a bit like they're failures in this world. And so that apparently minor thing may actually be quite significant in your lives. Well, I have some fantastic news for you this morning. Uh, Some of you know Ed Modine. He's a former member of our congregation. Uh, I was talking with Ed this past May, and Ed's now an executive for an international tire company. And as the company evaluated the way that this inflation that's raging is stressing their employees, they decided to act. And so they gave every one of their employees a temporary, admittedly, but a $100 a week uh, raise. But on top of that, Ed was told to give every single one of his employees a permanent 10% pay raise. Isn't that fantastic? You don't seem that encouraged. Uh, You mean you didn't all get a 10% pay raise last May? Oh, maybe not. See, it turns out that the extraordinary wealth produced in a free market economy is not distributed equally between every company and within a company not distributed equally with every employee. 
that's just the way it works. Let me give you a different image to consider for a moment. Suppose we're all of us going on a cruise together. We're taking a cruise across the North Atlantic. It's, it's fabulous. The ship is wonderful. We're enjoying the music. Some of us are eating way too much. Uh, we're enjoying watching the children play. It's fantastic. And then the ship hits an iceberg and starts to go down. Well, don't panic yet. The captain comes over the speaker and says, Fear not. We have prepared for this very moment. There is a covered, heated lifeboat in the back of the ship. And there is room for everyone there who made over a million dollars last year. Everyone who made over a million dollars last year, when you head to the stern of the boat and get into the lifeboat, it's going to save your life in comfort and in style. You know, a few of you actually look relieved. Um, let me say, you're doing really, really well. Uh, but for the rest of us, uh, not only is that not good news, it's actually kind of rubbing salt in the wound. There's disaster. There's a way of rescue, but it's not available to people like you and like me. It's only for someone else. Well, it turns out that the Roman Empire was a bit like that. In fact, all the empires in world history are a bit like that. There are benefits to the empire, but those benefits are not experienced by everyone equally. Now, if you're a friend of Caesar, or perhaps a very wealthy merchant, the Roman Empire was a good deal for you. You know, in the book of Revelation, the merchants mourned the collapse of the Roman Empire because that's how they got fat and rich. But if you want to see that it doesn't work out well for everyone, all you need to do is consider Joseph and Mary. Caesar Augustus snaps his fingers, and even though Mary is eight months pregnant, she has to travel from Nazareth to Bethlehem, David's ancestral home. Read the reality of life into that. This is not a fun trip to go see where uh, her husband-to-be's ancestors happened to live at one time. Augustus snaps his fingers and calls for a census, and although Mary is eight months pregnant, she has to journey with her husband to his ancestral home just so Caesar can make sure that he's squeezing every shekel he possibly can out of Judah in tax revenue. The benefits of empire are not distributed evenly. And yet, for those with the eyes to see, the good news of that first Christmas is already beginning to shine through. Hundreds of years earlier, Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. And we got a problem. Mary's in Nazareth. How in the world is Mary going to get from Nazareth to Bethlehem to give birth to the Son of God, who is also the Son of Man? But Almighty God simply has Caesar issue a tax decree, and it all falls into place. See, Augustus Caesar thought he was in charge. Turns out Augustus Caesar was just another pawn on the Almighty's chessboard. The Almighty issues the decree behind the scenes. Augustus acts, and the prophecies are all fulfilled. 
With the eyes of faith, we can see that Almighty God is in charge. And that's the first piece of good news that we see in this morning's passage. For all his pomp and apparent power, and that's true for the President of the United States and the President of Russia and everyone else on the face of the earth today, Chairman Xi and so on, for all of his pomp and apparent power, Caesar is not in charge. Almighty God is in charge and nothing can happen in your life apart from his sovereign and holy will. Phil Riken puts it beautifully. Although Caesar would never know it, he had unleashed a chain of events that would turn the whole world upside down. For among the millions who had to register was a man named Joseph and his fiancée, Mary. This one little family, seemingly swept up in the tide of earthly power, gave birth to a son who would rule the world. Mary's song was starting to come true. He has shown strength with his arm. He has shattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. God was taking Caesar's pawns and moving them to checkmate so that the real Savior would stand alone as the king of kings. Do you know that Caesar liked to fancy himself as Lord and Savior? Actually, both of those titles. He was absolutely in charge. So they printed coins that said Corius Caesoter on them, Lord and Savior. Uh, when the, one of the Caesars won a military battle, they would send out the message, good news, good news. Our leader has conquered over our enemies. And the very word they used is the same word that we use in the New Testament for gospel. In fact, they would also use it when a male son of Caesar was born. They would send out that word, euangelion, good news. The future ruler of the empire has been born. And we realize that that's just a parody of the true king of kings and lord of lords. Jesus alone is the rightful lord and savior of the universe. And I want you to see this morning is how differently the kings act. Caesar acted for his own glory and for those of his inner circle. But the kingdom of God isn't like that. When the angel of the Lord appeared to shepherds, he announced, Fear not. For behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Beloved, this is not good news for someone else. This is good news for you. As we will see in a moment, this is not good news for everyone without exception. But it is good news for everyone without distinction. Not without exception, but without distinction. What do I mean by that? Well, ultimately, the coming of the Messiah into the world isn't good news for those who refuse to bow the knee to him, those who refuse to put their trust in him. In fact, for them, it's bad news because it turns out that this king is the king of everything, and they will find themselves in rebellion against a king whose power cannot be resisted. But it is good news for everyone without distinction. For those who receive him from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from every race and socioeconomic group, it is good news for all manner of people. 
For in Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring and heirs according to the promise. You see the beauty of this message and the fact that God first announced this message to shepherds, not to priests, not to members of the royal family. But Almighty God first announced this message of good news to shepherds. But that actually gives us a bit of a problem. You know, when we put on um, plays, people do at Christmas time, and uh, the shepherds are played by beautiful young children, uh, freshly bathed, wearing bathrobes. I mean, who couldn't love shepherds like that, right? Uh, you have to get past that image of our Christmas Eve services and think about shepherds in the ancient world. Shepherds were despised in Israel. Uh, don't, don't think of little children wearing attractive bathrobes and smiling. Um, think of the shepherd trying to hide the flask behind his back as the angels appear, you know. They're out there drinking, or at least that's how they were perceived. You might think that's almost impossible, because after all, David, Israel's great king, was a shepherd. But you have to remember that when David was a shepherd, it was because he was the youngest. He got the least desirable work, as his older brothers got the more important stuff. In fact, do you remember what Eliab, his older brother, said to David when this, this young boy comes out to them to bring them uh, food when David's about to kill Goliath? He does not say, great, the deliverer of Israel is here, right? We're so grateful, David, that you've come to save the day. No, he says, who did you leave those few sheep you have out there in the wilderness with in order for you to come out here to the battle lines where we important people are? You hear the mockery in Eliab's voice there. He, he's talking down to David. you got this despised job of shepherds. And so it was throughout most of Israel's history. Shepherds were despised in Israel, but, beloved, they were not despised by God. The Lord makes clear how his kingdom would be different from Caesar's by announcing the birth of his son first to shepherds as they watched their flocks by night. What exactly is this good news of great joy that will be for all the people? The angel of the Lord continues, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Jesus is born of Mary, but Jesus is not born only for Mary. He's born for you. Unto you this child is given. Is that good news for you? Yeah. It's actually only good news for you if you realize that he's the type of savior that you need. Right? You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. If you think you're a good person who just needs someone powerful to come along and take your side, this is not the type of Messiah you're looking for. You're going to be looking for a Messiah who's going to overthrow the Roman Empire. 
or perhaps overthrow the Biden administration or Putin or Chairman Xi or whatever enemy you think you have. But if you understand that your biggest problem is that you are a sinner in the hands of a holy God, the fact that the Savior comes into this world to save us from our sins is the best news you could possibly hear. As the angel said to Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This is the type of Savior that Jesus is. He came to save us from the guilt and the power of our sins, and ultimately from its presence. One day in Christ you will dwell with God, and you will be free from every sinful thought you've ever had. You will be free from all the consequences of sin, all because the Son of God chose to be born in a manger and to die for his people. Let's step back a bit and ask what sin is and why it is such an enormous problem for us. Uh, To get at that, you have to ask yourself, what do you owe God? I mean, he's your creator. You are his creature. What do you owe God? And the Bible as a whole makes the message quite clear. We owe him perfect, personal, and perpetual obedience. That we love him at all times. Not only are our deeds perfect, but our hearts are perfect. Always trusting him. Always doing things out of love for him and love for our neighbor. So let me ask you, how are you doing? Perfect, personal, perpetual obedience. How are you doing? Well, if you're in any doubt at all, let me assure you, you're not doing that well. If you're a man, you can ask your wife. She will give you some insight into this. But you can look in Scripture, and what you will see is the obvious truth. We are all sinners. We we sin daily in thought, word, and deed. We don't come to church once a year to confess sins. We confess them every single Sunday. Because we're always doing it. Thankfully, God has not left us to ourselves. He has not left us to our own record. Rather, he has sent a Savior into this world who lived the life that you and I should have lived and died the death that you and I should have died so that we would live with God forever. That's what it means for Jesus to be your Savior. And this is closely related to the type of Lord that Jesus came to be. Caesar was the type of Lord who would snap his fingers and inconvenience everybody, having them have to move around and so on. He didn't care because it was about him. Jesus is the type of Savior who would choose to be born not in a palace, but in a manger. Caesar established a type of peace by killing all of his enemies. Jesus established peace by dying for his enemies, that we would become his friends, and more than friends, that amazingly, we would become his sisters and brothers. Beloved, that is grace. And so the angel proclaimed, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. But here's the question. How could the shepherds have assurance that this was in fact true? 
that this message was, in fact, what God was telling them. Well, the angel continues by giving them a sign. Really, God giving them a sign. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. The angel, on behalf of God, gave them a sign so that they could identify this king. They could identify this child. And he also gave them a sign which pointed to the type of king who had been born. Have you ever stopped and wondered what a strange sign this is? A babe wrapped in swaddling cloths. Actually, you know, the Lord had already appeared to them and through an angel, and he was about to light up the sky with his glory. Wasn't that the sign that would show that the message was true? Sure, sure it was. But what kind of Messiah would he be? See, the swaddling cloths in the manger are not simply about the fact that they said, this is the child. They could probably find other children in the area that were being wrapped in swaddling cloths, if not being in a manger that night. But they pointed to the humility of the Son of God who came into this world, not in a king's palace, but out in a feeding trough. There's an awful lot going on here. An awful lot more than some unfortunate Jewish parents struggling with challenging circumstances. Um, One scholar has pointed out that if you ever try to point something out to a dog, what if you've ever done this? You know, there's a ball out there and you point. What's the dog do? The dog looks at your finger, right? I mean, they're as likely to look at your fingers as they are to what you're pointing toward. And sometimes we can do that with Jesus. We can end up focusing on the manger. We can end up focusing on those accoutrements around Christmas. But the story of Christmas is not about the manger. The story of Christmas is about the Messiah, who out of his humility chose to be born in a feeding trough to save you and me. The scholar says it's a mistake many people make when reading the Christmas story to focus on the wrong things. What do people know about Jesus' birth? The manger, the Christmas crib, the most famous animal feeding trough in all of history. You see it on Christmas cards. Some churches even erect mangers on their lawns at Christmas time. But to concentrate on the manger and to forget why it was mentioned in the first place is like a dog looking at the finger rather than at the object. Why has Luke mentioned it three times in the story? The manger does keep getting mentioned. Well, if you want a sign that this message was from the Lord, the shepherds already had a sign from the Lord. They were speaking to an angel while the glory of God lit up the night. But once they knew that the child in the manger was the promised Messiah, the king who would fulfill the ancient prophecies, then the fact that he was born in a manger revealed what sort of king Jesus would be. It was a sign that Jesus was the king who was meek and lowly of heart. It was a sign that Jesus didn't come to hover over humanity. Let me say that again. I've discovered that um, sometimes evangelicals tend to think of Jesus 
as God kind of looking like a human being and kind of gliding through life, listening to the angels sing in heaven while we all go about with our struggles and hardships. That is wrong. Jesus did not come into this world to hover over humanity. He took to himself a true human nature. He understood the hardships of this world. We see Jesus growing tired and having to sit down by a well. We see Jesus crying as he has his emotions poured out over his loved ones and being sick and dying. Jesus did not come to hover over humanity. He came to identify with his people so that he would be fully man and therefore a perfect savior to bring us to God. And let us remember that being born in the feeding trough turns out not to be the most important or the most profound illustration of our Lord's humility. The child that was clothed in cloths as a child, swaddling cloths, would later on be clothed in a burial shroud. He didn't come simply to be born in a lowly estate and to arise and ascend to be the king. He was enthroned on a cross where he died for our sins. As Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 2, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours, in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being found in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son of God demonstrated the most profound humility that has ever been exhibited in all of history. Indeed, it's not even possible for us to display that sort of humility because we can't start so high. Nor can we ever get so low as to die for the sins of all the people who will ever be saved. It isn't even possible for us to have this humility. And yet Christ's humiliation is not the end of the story. As part of the sign, the Lord gave the shepherds a taste of the glory that is to come. The angel declared, and this will be a sign for you, you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths lying in a manger. And with this announcement, the whole sky lights up with the glory of the angels as they sing, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. Christ's birth, his life, his death, the entire plan of salvation is for your good but it is not for your glory. Glory to God in the highest. Do you see what God has done? He has done something beyond our wildest imaginations. Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
the contrast between the glory of Augustus Caesar and the glory of Jesus Christ, the glory of God in Jesus Christ, could hardly be any starker. The glory of Augustus depended on him impressing other people with his power and causing them to be afraid of his military might. You know, Augustus declared that his own adoptive father, Julius Caesar, was a god so that he could call himself the son of God. Jesus actually is the son of God. Not a mere man, but the living God who spoke the universe into existence. Think about those titles that Caesar took to himself, Savior and Lord, and in fact, even Son of God. We rightly and instinctively reserve those titles to Jesus Christ and to Jesus Christ alone. But when the true Lord and the true Savior of the universe came into this world, the true and eternal Son of God chose to be born in a feeding trough. Let's face it, if we didn't know the rest of the story, we wouldn't be impressed at all. Even as Christians, we tend to be impressed with pomp and circumstance. We tend to be impressed with those who are the movers and shakers of this world. But by God's grace, we do know the end of the story. And yet we ought to think about the grace of God who comes in apparent weakness As Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. There is a time when Christ will come again with outward power and glory. At that time, his enemies, including the kings and the military greats of this earth, will cry out that the rocks would fall on them and hide them from the wrath of God and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? But beloved, thankfully, that is not how Christ came the first time. If he did, we would all be doomed. When Christ came the first time, that very first Christmas, he came not to bring wrath upon his enemies. Jesus came to bear the wrath of God in our place. The aspect of God's gift that the heavenly host focuses on is God's gift of peace in Jesus Christ a gift that comes only in Christ and that comes by grace from beginning to end. Look at verse 14 again with me. The angels shout, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. I'm not even sure I like that translation that much. That can make it sound like those who are doing a good job, that's who he's giving his glory this too. It's actually upon whom his favor rests. A favor that rests upon you entirely by his free grace. Glory to God and peace for us. As sinners we are by nature at war with our God. 
Need I say it? It's a war that we cannot possibly win. Furthermore, we had nothing to offer God in an effort to win a true and lasting peace. But astonishingly, God himself steps in to establish peace by giving us his son. We have already seen that while the good news is for everyone without distinction, as I said, it is not for everyone without exception. The coming of Jesus is only good news for those who receive this gift. That is, the coming of Jesus is only good news for those who bow the knee and trust Jesus as their Savior and their Lord. Have you done that? As the angels make clear, this is not a personal achievement. In the world, the favor of Caesar may rest upon his best generals and his most loyal subjects. But the language that Luke uses here means something entirely different from that. God doesn't love you because you were intrinsically lovable. God's love, his divine favor, comes first. That's something you have to remind yourself of all the time. God's love, his divine favor, always comes first. That's why we sing amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. The reason why God's grace is so amazing is because I am such a miserable wretch left to myself. And beloved, so are you. But God's grace in Christ is greater than your sin. The thing that makes God's grace so amazing is that he showers it on wretches like me and on wretches like you. The favor that the Lord shows you by giving you peace in Jesus Christ is by his grace alone from beginning to end. And yet, is the most important gift that you will ever receive. How can you know, given how important this gift is, knowing that you've received it is important, how can you know right here, right now, that you are an object of God's favor? That in fact you are receiving this gift in Jesus Christ. Because the Lord is astonishingly kind, he hasn't made this difficult for us. All that is necessary for you to know that you are the object of God's favor is for you to place your trust in Jesus Christ. What does that look like? Well, it looks an awful lot like what the shepherds do. They hear the good news, and so they come to Jesus to discover the truth of who he is. And they rejoice at who Jesus is, and they go out glorifying and praising God. Beloved, that's it. Discover the truth, rejoice in the truth, and glorify God. Does that describe you? Have you come to Jesus and found that he is a Savior and Lord like no other? Have you bowed the knee so that by his grace you are seeking to live in accordance with his word? Are you excited that the Son of God was born in the manger to live the life that you and I should have lived, to die the death that you and I should have died? And are you glorifying and praising God by telling other people about the greatest news that has ever been told? If so, then you are an object of God's favor. 
If not, why not put your trust in Jesus right now? Because you can know this, that this gift is yours this very day. For you will never hear better news than what the angel of the Lord has announced. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Merry Christmas. Amen.